John is my name. And Ian is my name. And we come to you, well, we come to you on a very wet, rainy weekend in Manchester. What is it like where you are, Ian? Currently blue sky and sunshine. Oh, well, it's much better to be in the west coast of Scotland than the northwest of England. For many the, reasons. Yes, I mean, we knew that anyway, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, there's... As you know, listeners, we kind of talk about lots of different things on this podcast. Last week it was, or last time it was television. Mm -hmm. I think we might stray more today into the realms of what's going on in the country. You think? For the next 20 minutes or so, but we'll keep it to maybe 20 minutes because I think that's probably all we can take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had, what, 11 years of Boris and the, not Boris, but the Conservative Party. 20 minutes is fine. 20 minutes is fine. Um, and I believe, uh, well, things are getting better, Ian. I think we're only down to 44,000 cases of COVID yesterday. Oh, right, was it? Because it was 50,000 during the week. Yeah, I mean, I mean, life's getting better, you know. Hmm. Well, I mean, in Scotland, there was only like 2,000 cases. That's true. So up here, I mean, the difference is, and we've talked about this before, one of the big differences is in Scotland, you still have to wear a face mask when you go into Morrison's to get your shopping. If you send your children to school, they still have to wear face masks um, moving about the school. If you get a bus or a train, you are still legally obligated to wear a face mask. Whereas in England, I mean, the NHS and various scientists have suggested that maybe if you're not going to shut things down, you could maybe at least bring back face masks. And Boris last week said that, yeah, people should wear face masks, but we're not going to make them. And he was also asked last week if he would wear it in parliament just to kind of send out a good signal and he said no no i'm not gonna do that mm, well they're all friends in the conservative party so they don't it's fine. wear face masks yeah that's fine uh yeah it's um an odd one i don't really understand they, they say they have this plan b and they've got it all under control and there's this plan b that they can enact if they need to if the data tells them that they should um and you know what i mean i'm not a you know qualified scientist in this area maybe the data saying they don't yet need it but i don't understand why uh face masks like it doesn't cost anybody anything no that's you're not i mean that's the thing, thing because it's i mean it's it's deja vu from last year you know we're now a couple of months out from christmas the media have started asking about Christmas. Is Christmas going to be cancelled? Are there going to be lockdowns? Are there going to be restrictions? The Tory politicians have started to say, well, we can't rule anything out, but hopefully not. Everything will be fine. The numbers are going up and up and up. They're the highest they've been for like half a year. And you know that they're probably going to have to shut things down. I don't actually think it will happen up here, the shutdown, but I think it's going to have to happen in England if the numbers keep going the way they are, if the hospitals end up under a lot of pressure again. Um... But I don't understand because you could just say to people, look, you have to wear a mask. You can still go to the cinema, you can still go to nightclubs, you can still do all these things, but we're going to bring in a vaccine passport or some kind of, you have to test before you get a nightclub. And if you want to go to Morrison's, just put a mask on. It's fine. Just put a mask on. 
Yeah. The, the vaccine passport thing we've talked about, I, I'm not entirely sure that really makes much of a difference. But asking people who are everyday, you know, like everyday things like going to the shops and going to school, just getting people to wear a mask for that would make a massive difference down south. Mm. And I think, yeah, I think I, I really struggle with it because I just, it's just deja vu, like you say. Huh? And, and the absolute. Oh, I mean, we talked about it at the time, and and I think it probably to listeners maybe sounded like a bit of sour grapes, a bit of oh, the government are now doing a good job, and you don't want to offer any praise to them doing a good job. But the whole boastful um, triumphalism of the vaccine rollout in February, March, and April, when we were the greatest country on earth because we had this vaccine rollout, whereas Europe and America and everyone else was was struggling manfully. And now we're the sick man of Europe again. Yeah. We're not and, number one of the vaccines anymore. We're about number seven. And we are in a kind of a sort of health crisis once again. Yeah. And and you know as well as as as, as I do is I mean, every year, and I think this is where this is sometimes where all sort of institutions, the Guardian, who I love, obviously, uh, but also the NHS, which obviously I've got a lot of time for, they always get themselves in this message because every October, November, for as long as I can remember, I mean, throughout the entire austerity tour years, right enough, mm-hmm. the NHS says it's on its knees. Yeah. And the Guardian report it, and so do most other, you know, more like even the times say would report it the nhs is going to be on its knees you know if we have a bad flu and of course we're back there again and and it does make you think well if you were on your knees in 2015 like you've got to find a new way of describing it now definitely (laughs) because because it must be worse now and i think that that thing is we've also talked about austerity and how austerity works like both of us used to work in, in in schools and one of the things is when you, you'd see austerity from inside the school, but if you were a parent, you wouldn't necessarily see austerity because you would still know that, you know, in an English classroom, there was still an English teacher in mm-hmm. front of you and there were still books being given to the kids. So, well, where is this austerity? Is it just like teachers are complaining because they're not getting as big a pay rises as they want? Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, you would see that the school office, which used to have maybe eight staff doing all manner of admin is now down to three mm. uh, learning support departments that maybe had enough capability to be able to have one-on-one support for 15, 20, 30 kids is now down to being able to only offer one-to-one support for maybe six or seven kids. Mm. And that's how austerity works. And it's the same with the NHS is that the hospitals are all still open. The GP mm-hmm. practices are all in, in, a, in a sense open and so you're like, well, where is this austerity then? And you only know it if you're a cancer patient who is having to wait, um, a person who's awaiting surgery and is having to go, their, their wait's gone from three months to six months to nine months to 12 months. But if you're not actually an individual suffering those circumstances, you don't know about it. And so no. therefore the revolution that kind of feels is, is needed it's never actually going to happen. No, not unless every single person 
in the UK needs the same kind of serious treatment, which, yeah. I mean, thankfully that never does happen, but it would take something. Because obviously, yeah, you're right, the NHS has been on its knees, that was me speaking with speech marks there, mm-hmm. um, for, what, five, six, seven years now. And for the last two years, it's also had to deal with being the kind of saviour of a country in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. A, com- a country that's been governed by not the most proactive government in terms of dealing with the pandemic and the NHS has miraculously still managed to cope no I wouldn't have said because of the government despite the government the, the NHS has still managed to cope just yeah. thereabouts and and I think we think of it as coping and then it's it's, it's almost like we we can never see it because we're in the midst of you know this is probably a very horrendous analogy I'm about to give here but Sometimes I think to myself, you know, you see when you see those first world war films mm. and you see those young men who had to exist in the trenches for like some of them for four years. And you're like, how could you cope with that? How could you cope with day after day after day of seeing that? And then I suppose the answer was, well, there was no alternative. Yeah. In those days, there was no alternative. If you were an 18, 19 year old able bodied man, you were there. There wasn't mm. an alternative to it. And so you could never see the life that you otherwise would have had. There was no way of seeing it. And in this circumstance, we have been in these trenches of COVID, which I know is a trite analogy and an awful one, but we've been in these trenches of COVID now for 18 months. And I think we've forgotten, and and, and it's Tory austerity for 11, and I think we've forgotten the idea that if you're suffering from mental health, that actually treatment can be given Immediately. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait six months for mental health treatment. There's no law that there's no, you know, uh, clinical reason why you should, but we're just used to the fact that it is now. Yeah. And we have just accepted it. And it's now, it's almost quite convenient for the government who have, you know, everything gets laid at the feet of COVID and Brexit. They can now say, oh, because this has happened, things are, you know, have to tighten our belts. But yeah, we've had this for a long time where people have just grown to accept it, that it's the norm that you wait that you have to wait 20 weeks for this, or you have to wait eight hours for an ambulance, or any of these things, which yeah. 10 years ago, you would have taken for granted that if you phone an ambulance, there'll be one there. I mean, I don't know, I've never had to phone an ambulance, but I would, in my head, I would think, if there's an emergency, someone in your family is having a heart attack, you phone the ambulance, it's there in a matter of minutes. Mm. But now, I think it's just expected that, oh, it could be six hours, could be eight hours for the ambulance to come. Yeah. I was talking to someone the other day, who, um, husband, had uh, very serious COVID, and had to get taken to hospital. Like couldn't breathe, COVID, uh-huh. and had to had to wait eight hours for an ambulance. I mean, and was told not to bring the husband to hospital because it would be dangerous for them to take the hus- husband to hospital. But eight hours, eight and hours. was then taken in and put on a respirator. Is now looking like they might recover, but it touch and go for a wee while. But eight hours. You imagine sitting with somebody for eight hours who can't breathe, waiting for an ambulance. It's. It's horrifying. And that's the kind of stuff that people like you hear these things, you know, you read about them maybe in the garden and see stories in the news, and it's it's easy to kind of distance yourself from it because it's not actually happening to you. But when you actually know people that it's happened to and you hear them talking about it and getting quite upset, it's quite difficult. And we have just as a nation grown very apathetic and that we do just accept the fact that you know, we've now accepted the fact that everything like heating and electricity is gonna be more expensive. Food's going to be more expensive and scarce. 
and that our NHS is not going to be able to serve us as efficiently as it should. We've just accepted that because we look at our Prime Minister and go, well, look at the guy in charge. What do we expect? <laughs> and yet, depressingly, if there was an election on Thursday, they'd probably still win by yeah. quite a large number. I mean, did you read Boris's piece that he wrote in The Sun last week? No, because I, I refuse to read anything. Were you aware of the content of it? I think I've read an odd sentence. Well, like, I, I, will, I, I, will, I wrote it down. Just <laughs> one paragraph I wrote down. This was basically last week they made, an, like the government, Boris Johnson's own government made an announcement that they were going to be giving £5,000 grants to people to get their boilers up to standards in terms of being eco-friendly and carbon emissions and what have you. And then the next day he wrote an he wrote a editorial piece for the Sun. Now remember when I'm reading you this out, it wasn't the Labour Party; it was Boris Johnson's government who made this policy. Okay, it wasn't Jeremy Corbyn, it wasn't Keir Starmer, it wasn't Nicola Sturgeon or the Green Party. This was Boris's own party that wanted to do this. Also, bear in mind that a Tory MP was uh, stabbed um, in a horrific knife crime yes. the week before as well. When you think about the language that Boris used in this article, I'm just going to read you one paragraph, okay? This okay. is verbatim. He said, I'm not going to do his voice because like, he doesn't deserve it. So, while we're going to have to make some pretty major changes to the way we heat our homes, the green shirts of the boiler police, nice, are not going to kick in your door with their sandal-clad feet and seize at carrot point your trusty old combi. Now, there's so much wrong with that. <laughs> I mean, as I said, a conserv a member of parliament was murdered the week before mm. and he was stabbed to death. And yet he's making a joke about four days later about being held at carrot point by yes. some sandal-clad green shirts of the boiler police. I mean, forget the fact that he wrote this on Tuesday. On Monday, Boris and his cronies were in Parliament telling us we need to be kinder. We need to make politics kind again. <laughs> and then that's published in the Sun the very next day. But it's like, it's a weird thing where his own party have announced a policy and then he writes a thing in the kind of tabloid press the next day saying, yeah, but I don't actually want this to happen. So it's almost like, yeah, guys, get your boilers done, but, but don't really, don't really do it. I don't really want you to do this. It's just a very strange... Well, it's, it's, it's exactly the same The mindset that goes, come on, everybody, wear masks, but I'm not going to wear one. Yeah, you should wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask in Parliament. It's, it's the most... Uh, I found myself a lot today in this podcast kind of making just weird random noises because yeah. I, I, I find it difficult to find words that did match you, the occasion. Did you see the picture of him with his son on his shoulders during the week? Yes. Where instead of holding his son's feet to support him, he was holding a glass of champagne and one of his aides was holding the child from behind, had his hand on the child's back. I mean, we know Boris is not keen on child support, but this is an actual <laughs> a metaphor for that in a photograph. I mean, if you oh. wanted to sum up Boris's attitude as a human being, there he is in his suit holding a, a, a champagne flute with one hand and there's one of his staff is holding the child up on his back it's yeah. a terrible look i've never seen anyone do that before no and, and and also in the same week i mean this is the thing is this is one week uh is that on the same week there is a question mark over whether he broke lockdown rules on christmas day yeah i mean we got i mean imagine that imagine that for a second there's a question mark mm -hmm. over that i remember it wasn't quite this time last year it was a bit it was a bit later I think we were in, um, it was when 
Oh, I forgot what they were called. Um, category three? No, what were oh, we? Don't please don't remind us of that. But yeah, we were in the, one of the levels. Levels. That was what it was. Yeah, we were in level three um, down here in, um, in 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 Great Manchester, and um, there was a, a situation uh, within within my family where we were having to go around somebody's house, and there was a genuine fear. A genuine fear that the police might be called. Yeah, yeah. Because we were go, we were, we knew we were breaking the law, or we were breaking the rules, and mm. and could that evolve, you know, and, and and could we be breaking the law, and and we did, should we go around? No, I don't know if we should, we should go around. No, we're just going to go around anyway, and we'll face the consequences, and we'll face them down. And there was such a stress on that because we felt that you know we should be abiding by both the the mm. the law and the spirit of the law. Because mm. we felt as a family that that was that was important to do, but at the same time there was personal circumstances that made it difficult. And yet, our prime minister, who has all of the like, the idea that they were round, she was round to some kind of childcare bubble. When the two parents were there, mm-hmm. like, why do you need childcare support if the two parents are already there? But it's just Barnard Castle all over again, isn't it? But 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 also the fact is that. And this is something that, I mean, it's one of those conspiracy theory type things, but it's not really, is the police must have known she was there. Of course. She wouldn't have been allowed in unless the police knew she was there. All the staff in Downing Street knew she was there. Uh, and yet it's taken 10 months for it to actually come out. Like if there were so, I mean, if, that, if those were the rules and they were the spirit of the rules, then they should have come out on, you know, when we were all, oh no, we're actually going to have to, closed the country for Christmas we, we can't all do what you want to do they should have come out in that moment and said look but this is the rules this is how it works is we've got this lady she's my wife's best friend and uh, she's coming to come around and she's going to stay you know she's going to come around on Christmas and uh, whether she stayed or didn't stay whichever one it was uh, and she's doing this because she's part of our childcare bubble and we just want you guys to all realize exactly what these rules mean so mm-hmm. This is her situation, and she's the childcare bubble, and that's why she's going to be with us this uh, this Christmas. So if you have that situation, then you guys should do that too. Yeah. And people would have felt lo- so much more at ease because it would have been like, all oh, right, I can do that then. So I can invite my mother-in-law because she is the childcare bubble. Yeah. yeah. And she can come round. And and but but obviously they weren't following the rules because it's taken ten months for it to come out. And they're still being kind of cagey about it. Yeah. They, it took, as, it, as they always are. It took a day for them to confirm whether she mm. was there or not. Yeah. Um, and then another day to confirm that they hadn't broken the rules. <laughs> but the thing is, they know if they stand still long enough, something, another story will replace it. There's so oh. much going on. There's so many, like, just... In, in normal times, and I mean normal as in having a normal Prime Minister, even Cameron or Theresa May... There's, there's usually like three stories a week now that would finish off a normal prime minister. Oh, completely. You think there is nothing if it came out that, Mo- that Boris had murdered somebody. Well, it's like it's like Trump. Nothing would happen. No. Obviously, like if he actually did properly, I would say break the law. But I mean, we know he's broken the law on a number of occasions. And I mean, the Jennifer and Cooley thing that just kind of disappeared. Nobody yeah, mentions yeah. that anymore. That just got <laughs> swept under the carpet, and that's just never been mentioned. Exactly. And uh, you know, and. and... Even the even the idea that he did absolutely nothing wrong with his decorating his flat. I know that's all been forgotten about. It's, or spending it's... that money doing up his speech room. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean that just, but it's just again, people just grow to accept. It's like, well, this is Boris. I mean, do you know what really annoyed me? That the green shirt thing I was reading you before. Mm. They were talking about that on BBC News one morning this week, and the political correspondent, um, whose name I've forgotten, Adam something, um, they were discussing it, and he said, "Well, of course, this is just classic Johnsonian rhetoric." Instead of saying, this is disgraceful, yeah. that language that he's used, it's not befitting a Prime Minister, it's not befitting uh, any politician, given what's happened last week and given the serious situation we're in as a country. But it was just classic Johnsonian rhetoric. That was it. It's just Boris being Boris. Boris being Boris. It's 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 so outrageous. It's, it's, it's untrue. And do you know what it, makes me sometimes makes me think is, mm-hmm. until, well, no, how should I put this? Brexit completely and utterly destroyed Corbyn mm-hmm. because he didn't know what to do about it. He wasn't he wasn't no. savvy enough. But do you know what? Eighteen months of COVID, and if we'd had Corbyn as leader of the mm. Labour Party, I think the polls would be very different now. I and, I think so. And I'm not a Corbyn fan by any means. I was once upon a time. Um, I'm not going to lie, I joined the Labour Party and voted for him in that mm-hmm. first leadership election. But he would have offered opposition. Yeah. And what we've got now is just a blancmange. Like, you've he, got, he had, yeah. Keir Starmer had that speech of his life that was going to turn everything around. And all these Labour commentators came out at the end of that week of conference and was like, oh, he's rebirthed himself. He's been able to get himself on an even keel and we've now had three weeks of utter nonsense and and he hasn't I haven't no. I don't even know what he thinks. I don't think he's laid a glove on Johnson once. No. In the last couple of weeks. And you think of the open goal that he's had. It's almost as if Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is the manager of the Labour Party. Yeah. It's like what is he waiting for? Is he, is he is he constantly thinking to himself, oh, well, the vaccine rollout worked, so I can't say anything about COVID. And, and, you it's know, like he's, it's, it's almost, and again, it's maybe a Brexit thing, he's maybe frightened to rock the boat with the people that like Boris. And it's just, yeah. that's what it feels like. It feels like you've got an opposition party who are led by people who are frightened because they know that to make any kind of gains in the next election, they have to kind of eat into those Brexity folk that like Boris. Yeah. But how do you do that? Other than just behave like, I mean, unless they put somebody like Boris in charge of the Labour Party, which, again... You're just going to lose all the, the kind of progressive folk. Labour are really kind of cornered just now. And I do agree with you. I think if you had somebody like Corbyn or indeed the man himself in charge, the, the polls would certainly be a lot closer and you would have had somebody who would have actually taken them to task. If the Labour Party had somebody like Nicola Sturgeon in charge, oh, you can imagine if they actually had somebody who was competent, who yeah. actually was on top of their brief and knew... Like knew how to go for somebody and actually do it effectively. Yeah. I mean, Keir Starmer's speech was all right, but it went on for two and a half hours. <laughs> and all, yeah. and all I, the thing is, the only bit I remember was the toolmaker joke. It's the only bit yeah. I remember. And, and and that's the thing is nobody cares about conference speeches. What they care about is you go on the news, you get yourself on the six o'clock news or the ten o'clock news, and you have a two and a half minute soundbite where you where you go after the prime minister, like what Tony Blair did, like. I can't understand this man that surrounded himself with Tony Blair-esque figures like uh-huh. Mandelsons and stuff and it isn't doing any of the Tony Blair stuff. No. Do you know what's really depressing? I heard it was Nick Eardley was on talking about the speeches and he was talking about it was after Keir Starmer's speech and he was talking about the meme 
the memeable nature of his speech, and he's saying that's what counts now. It's like, can he make memes and gifs out of your speech? And they said, Boris's will be full of memes. Keir Starmer's isn't. So there you go. Oh, it's all oh. about the, it's all about it's all about meme generation. A meme generation, which I find incredibly. I mean, you and I were talking about succession before we started this, yeah. and uh, I was listening to a BBC thing where they were interviewing Brian Cox and Matthew McFadden, and that was one of the things they were talking about them about, like the fact they've all become like gifts and meme sensations, and you could tell Brian Cox especially was like, I don't know what that is, like I don't <laughs> care, but I hate how that has now become a thing. Like something is only popular if you can make memes of it. Yeah, it's. Oh, it's just it's because Boris world. is Boris is an easy meme because of the way he looks. Yeah, exactly, and and, and it's and not even is, positive, but it, like it's still seen as like, yeah, you know, what kind no of world are we in where not it, it doesn't need to be positive for you to be popular? I, yeah. I, it's, it's utterly bizarre. But anyway, <laughs> this has been a bit of a primal scream <laughs> for the last uh, twenty-five minutes. I know. Uh, I feel like Bobby Gillespie. Exactly. Before we go, we always do this, especially when we have primal scream weeks is one positive thing that we can tell the listener, be it culture, be it, well, anything really. Well, I think it's pretty obvious given we just made, I just referenced it, but we've both been talking Succession. Yes. Succession's back. Started back last week. I binged watched, because I'd never watched season two. I binged watched season two this week. And I started season three this morning before I phoned you. Um, it's, it's the best drama on television right yes. now by a long shot. It's one of these things where people always go, "Oh, Breaking Bad is the greatest thing." Blah, blah, blah. Like I, I've tried Breaking Bad and I've always found it a bit hard going. Succession lives up to the hype. It's moving. It's Shakespearean, not in, not in a bad way. No. <laughs> it's it's funny. Um, if you like watching a family tear itself apart, it's cleverly written. The characters are weird in that you kind of none of them are particularly likable, but you do like them. Um, yes. It's the the theme tune. I've been whistling the theme tune all week. <laughs> It's quite a hard one to whistle, but I do find myself whistling the piano refrain from the theme tune all the time. It's classy entertainment, and it's very good entertainment. It's on Sky Atlantic just now. The second episode will be on at like two o'clock in the morning tonight, and I'll be Sky Plusing that or watching it in the morning for sure. Uh, yes, I I can only um, second what Ian has said. I think it's 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 a phenomenal phenomenal piece of television um that will stand the test of time as well and i think um yeah it's it's sort of get it while you can basically i would say as well is just on a slightly more um sort of more closer to home note um shetland is back on bbc one which is a fine piece of crime drama with the wonderful douglas henshaw mm-hmm. uh, and continuing the scottish theme um uh, guilt on bbc two with mark bonner is one of the best things that British television has produced for a good know, while I've, as well. I've never watched Guilt. I think, I can promise you this, Ian, is if you were to watch the first episode of the first series of Guilt, you would still find yourself laughing about I, an hour and a half after it. I know I will. And that's why I, it's, it's perplexing that I haven't watched it because I've read a lot about it. I, I like Mark Bonner very much. I think he's very funny in everything that he's in. Um, he's a good actor. I don't yeah. know why I just haven't watched it. Well, I think now that I'm caught up with Succession, this week's binge will be Guilt Season 1 then. It's on well, iPlayer. I'll it's watch only it. four episodes as well. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's really so I'll be short. done. I'll be done by Tuesday. Exactly. And and you'll absolutely love it. All of Season 2 is on iPlayer. I've not watched all of Season oh, right. 2 yet. I'm keeping it like, you yeah, know. Yeah, I would do that. I hate it, it when they do that. When they, I, I prefer to watch it weekly once you're yeah, the actual yeah. current seasons. I want to see it the way they wanted us to see it, not the way BBC iPlayer wants me to see it. 
exactly and it's well worth the watch so so right. yeah so even if we're in a slightly dark place at the moment you can television is at a and you know you might not have watched all of ted lasso yet uh, so you know television is in a good place so mm-hmm. um listeners there is some something good to 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 spend your time doing uh but anyway we will leave you and we'll hopefully be back um next week or very soon after uh, to speak with you again and hopefully the country will be just a bit better uh, take care of yourselves everybody bye goodbye